Matthew chapter 6. I'm primarily going to be just looking at verses 22 through 24 this morning, but I am going to read uh, just the illustration that we looked at last Sunday again, just read that with the context. Uh, Follow along with me as I, I read aloud. Verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Heavenly Father, as we look into this text, I pray that our hearts would be moved with a sensation of realization of honesty, that we are not as singular in our focus to You as we often think we are, and that we would be willing to take the steps necessary to become singular in our devotion to You. I pray, Father, that we would be transformed into the glories of Your Son, that we would no longer be disfigured and destroyed by the lusts and ambitions of our own heart, but that we would be transformed into the likeness of Your dear Son. We thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which changes us from the inside out, and I pray, Father, that we would rely not on ourselves but on You, that we would trust You and lean not on our own understanding. Lord, guide us as we think about this text this morning for Your glory's sake. Amen. We want it. We needs it. Must have the precious. They stole it from us. Sneaky little hobbitses. Wicked, tricksy, false. Those are the greedy and obsessive words of a hobbit who had once been known as Schmeagel who his obsession transformed him into a hideous creature called Gollum. Tolkien's fanciful world becomes, in some ways, a great illustration for spirituality and living life in a fallen world. Gollum is a withered, frightful creature, but he had not always been that way. At one time, he was a hobbit living in the Shire. He was living contentedly. And one day he fell into the spell of a golden ring and had the power to make the wearer invisible, but its power was even more sinister than that. It, it drew the affections and it totally distorted his interior and it affected his exterior. And you'll be grateful that I don't project a picture of his final form. It will give you nightmares. It's just a nasty-looking creature, at least in this depiction. Uh, And uh, in in, in time, I think it's a great illustration because in time, he became like the treasure he coveted. He, He disappeared. His true form 
gradually disappeared and it was disfigured and covered over. It's really a marvelous picture of Jesus' teaching here that we also will become over time that which we value and we will disappear, we will become disfigured. We want it, we need it. We must have that preciousness. So if we, trans, if we treasure that which is transitionary, it's going to destroy us. It will disfigure us. My sermon title this morning sounds a little bit like a chapter in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, two, uh, two Eyes and Two Lords. It sounds kind of cryptic, kind of something that Tolkien might write. But really... In it is woven, really, a picture of brokenness and also the opportunity for relief. Gollum's entrapment is woven all the way through these two analogies, and many people are as broken as Gollum was broken. Many people are brokenhearted. They're disoriented in their walk in this world. People have a thirst for wholeness, but they don't know where to go. They don't know where to turn. They want to be whole inside, but they're divided and they're distorted. I mean, just take a look in Walmart. You see a lot of distorted and hurting folks. I don't mean that as a joke. But you walk out into society and you see a lot of people who are hurting. These analogies are intended to teach us two ways to live. Two ways to live. One way of life will disfigure and destroy us. The other way of life will release us and liberate us. But we've got to let go of the ring like Gollum. We've got to let go of success as our primary treasure. We've got to let go of desire for inordinate intimacy, self-worth, power, vengeance, gold. All of it has to be let go of. We have to hang on to Christ who is infinitely greater. And I believe that Jesus is turning our attention to realize that if we were wanting to be whole, if we want to be whole, then we must be singular in our faith devotion to God. Jesus loves little turns of phrases, and in this this little short illustrations, there are these little turns of phrases that are are beautiful to, to look at and to watch. Um, and because, though, the, the ancient text was written not in English, it was written in Greek, some of these are less apparent to us English readers. But it's helpful, though, if we take the time, and I've only chosen three verses, so we can take a little time to kind of understand the imagery that is behind the words that Jesus chose. Each word is inspired by God, it is effective, and it's valuable for doctrine, and it's also good for our instruction. And the little turns of phrase are just beautiful. He has, like, puns that are just underneath the surface. And I think you'll appreciate the sense of where he's going in his sermon. Let's look first at the first analogy of the two eyes, the two eyes, verse 22 to 23. I'll read it one more time. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. 
Now, Jesus describes the eye like a lamp, a lamp. What does Jesus mean by this metaphor? Well, the eye as a lamp of the body has a variety of interpretations, and I want us to think about each of them. I, I believe that Jesus has a particular purpose in why He described the eye as a lamp, and it may not be as apparent to us at first look. Uh, and we have to think a little bit about how the mind processes light, how it processes light. Some in ancient culture thought that light and images went into the eye from the outside. Some people thought about light coming in the ocular windows, and uh, this way of thinking about it was called intromission. Intromission. The word mission means to send or to go forward. Intro means to go into. So, you can see though that that sounds kind of familiar to our way of thinking, isn't it? It's almost the prevailing view of a scientific culture today is that um, light carries images into your eyes and it reflects on the retina on the inside of your eye and sends signal to your brain. That's how, how we've, we've understood it, but that's not always the way it's been explained or thought of through time. The eye being a lamp may also be understood from another perspective Another way of thinking, in the ancient world, up through the 1500s, most people described the eye as reflecting and projecting what was on the inside, and that was called extra mission, sending outside, going, projecting out of one's eyes. It's kind of a creepy picture there of that illustrated on the wall of how people thought about it, but we might actually find that this way of thinking is actually more probably than what we might think. Because we would actually could call this the biased view. A person's belief about what's around them can affect what they see. A few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, I, I preached a sermon based upon the extra mission view. The ladies who went to the tomb had expectations, and therefore, they were looking for the dead in a graveyard. Their perception was instructed by their belief. What they saw is what they had come believing. And our perception of reality can be skewed by a wrong set of ideas. What a difference would it have been if they had believed Jesus' words when He had said that He would rise within three days. They would not have been coming with spices. What would they have been coming with? Palm branches. They would have been coming victoriously rejoicing over what they had seen. So, if the eye is the lamp of the body, then either light or darkness may truly be projected out of ourselves. But this fits clearly with what Jesus had already communicated in other places, that it's not what goes into the body which defiles a person, but that which comes out of the person, that's what defiles the person. Let me give you an example. I had a great-grandmother who moved in with my grandparents in her latter years. My great-grandmother 
misread a lot of the communication that happened in my grandparents' home. She misinterpreted charity to them and kindness to her, and she was paranoid by every conversation. And she began to misread relationships because of past experience in her life. She had trauma of abuse in her younger years as a younger woman, and she misread everything that was going on around her. And this is the kind of vision, I believe, Jesus is talking about. It's the projection of one's heart into the world around you. And so, Jesus is talking about the eye, but more fundamentally, He's talking about the heart. What the heart believes is going to project around you what you see. So, how does the heart, though, affect the quality of one's life? Look at verses 22 to 23. You see this in contrast. You see the eye described as healthy, and then you see in verse 22 an an eye that's unhealthy or it's described as bad, verse 23. And what Jesus is doing here is He's describing the seat of our heart or our affections, the seat of our affections, as critical for interpreting what's going on around us. The heart is a faculty of psychology that influences what we do. It influences what we choose. It influences our will. And we choose things because we see them as being desirable. This is what we would call our free will. What we perceive to be desirable in our sensation of experiences, we choose things which we innately believe to be best for us. James taught this truth in the book of James, chapter 4. James heard some of these sermons of Jesus, and he asked the question, why is it that quarrels and fights are happening among you? And he said, well, it's because we covet. It's because we're frustrated by the desires that we have and we choose to participate and engage in in conflict because we believe something about what we want. And it's a divided and broken and frustrated life that we live because we're seeing things that we desire and want. We're choosing to engage in bad behavior. Well, the will is free, yes, but apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're going to make a lot of choices in life that are going away. We're going away from God Himself. We have a depraved nature that ensnares us and causes us to think and misread what's really best for us, and we choose wrongly. And so, what Jesus is doing in this text, He's he's describing two kinds of hearts, eyes. And if you'll oblige me just a moment, I want to just show you, kind of like in a museum, a couple of weeks ago I said, you know, like, I like going to a museum and seeing all the plaques. Here's one of these little plaques that I'd like us to read so we understand better the illustration. Jesus says in verse 22, if your eye is healthy, that is better to be read singular or whole, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
excuse me, I, I skipped a line. If your eye is healthy or singular or whole, uh, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or literally evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus uses a wordplay. The word that we see in our English translations as healthy is actually not properly translated healthy. It's more properly translated singular or whole. In most contexts, it's always in a context where there is a contrast with singular versus double. Haplos or diplos. In the word diplos, you can see the word divergent or double. Haplos is a little harder, but it's the, it's the idea of singular. And so, as you, as you read these, what you're seeing is a contrast with something that's not double or binary, but something that's singular. We could probably see this and recognize that we have two eyes, do we not? What happens if they're not functioning together as one, and they're splitting and moving? Our eyes aren't going to see clearly, are they? It's better for your eyes to be healthy, and this is kind of the idea of healthiness. Your eyes kind of come back together, and they're seeing together as one. That's a healthy situation. And Jesus, I believe here, is communicating the idea of the singularity of heart that has to be focused on God Himself. If you want to have a healthy, flourishing life, you can't be looking in separate directions. You've got to be looking at God Himself for your direction. Jesus, earlier in His sermon, said, you've got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect communicates the idea of completeness, of wholeness. God is the most happy and blessed being. Like, if you want to be happy and blessed, then you need to focus your heart and life as He is, to be perfect and entire and complete. This wholeness cannot be self-manufactured, though. How do we know? Well, Jesus has already told us, like, you go to the law and you stand before the law. The law says you're not whole. You can't measure up. You can't be whole. Well, then how does this work? Is it, like, through increasing our worship? Like, well, it could be that as you're worshiping, you're actually looking in two different directions. You may not be worshiping God like you think you're worshiping Him. You might be worshiping like at a public square and praying out loud in public and looking for the appraisal of other people. You may be divided in your focus. You may be giving alms and hoping that people will say that you're a jolly good fellow. You may be even disfiguring your face and your fasting just to get attention from other people. You've got a divided eye. John's Gospel, there's this, this remarkable exchange about a blind man and a Pharisee, the Pharisees. Jesus had come by and healed a blind man. The blind man obviously didn't know who Jesus was who healed him. He was found by the Pharisees later and questioned, and the Pharisees say to him, give glory to God. We know that this man who healed you is a sinner. 
And the blind man said, Whether he is a sinner I do not know, but one thing I do know, though that I was blind, now I see. Who's the blind person? The Pharisees were the blind people. I couldn't think of a better illustration of what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount than that blind man. If your heart is evil, you're not going to be able to see. If you're like a Pharisee, you're not going to be able to see properly. You have to be able to have a heart that is converted so that you can see as you ought to see. You need to be born again. You need to be healed. And if you would be whole, you must then engage in the singular focus of devotion to God Himself. You might say to yourself, well, why do I keep falling into cycles of sin? What am I doing wrong? Well, the process of falling into sin is the process of looking in different directions. You walk down a road and you start to turn your eye, you're going to follow yourself into the ditch. You have to look straight on and follow Christ. James talks about this problem, too, in his little book, his short little letter. He talks about how, how is it that salt water can come out of a Christian and then sweet water comes out of a Christian? Why is it, why is it that we, we have these experiences? And James concludes it's because you've not quite appropriated the wisdom that has come from above. You're still in the infant stage of growth. You're still showing yourself to be a child in your relationship with God. You're not growing because you're still looking in separate directions. Why do you fall down when you're walking over a path? It's because you're not looking straight on. But the challenge is when we recognize that when we fall into sin, we don't just lay there in the ditch, we get back up. We know that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His blood was sufficient for our past, our present, and our future. But we want to grow. We don't want to keep falling in the ditch. We want to be healthy in the heart so that we can engage the world around us. And so we do at times need to take time to evaluate why do we choose sin instead of virtue? Is it because we're looking in wrong directions? I want to show you one other illustration here in this, these verses, verse 23 particularly, he talks about if your eye is bad. And this is where the pun goes a little bit further. He uses that word singular as reference to the eye. Now, you're looking at that word, ophthalmos, and you're thinking, what? Well, that just simply means like an ophthalmologist. Have you ever been to one of those? It's an eye doctor. So, some people have singular eyes. Some people have evil eyes, poneros, evil eyes. An evil eye. The ancient world associated the evil eye with greediness envy, stinginess, especially when talking about possessions. For example, in ancient culture, the Old Testament, 
Israel was encouraged not to be a stingy people, to not look at their neighbor who is struggling and turn away. In the book of Proverbs, talked about a greedy or a stingy person as having an evil eye. It's talking about the depravity, and it's very significant in this context. In other words, Jesus is describing the opposite of an evil and greedy heart. He's describing if you want to have a whole heart, it, got, it has to be contrasted with greediness. It has to be generous. And you have to look carefully at the surrounding context because Jesus is talking about seeking reward for righteousness by paying attention to what people think about you in the crowds. On the other hand, there's, there's, there's conflict. If you're looking for praise from other people and not from God, there's a good chance that your heart underlying is filled with evil. There's a good chance that you may be putting on a face in front of other people, but yet internally you're bearing grudges against people. Maybe you're even committing adultery in your heart. You show up at church and you put on a good front, but in your private life you're committing adultery in your heart. You're creating workarounds so you don't have to keep your word. You're retaliatory. You're angry. You're greedy. You basically have got a dishonest heart. When Jesus taught about the law, He gave example after example of someone who claimed to be a follower of, of God before the law, but they're creating all these little workarounds. And these same group of people are showing up and presenting themselves as pious and upstanding in the community, but God knows the heart. God knows what's really there inside. And the person he's been describing throughout this whole sermon is a person who's divided, who has an evil heart, who internally is greedy, and they're not generous, and they're, they're really not converted. They're not born again. And I think it's really helpful for us to really appreciate what Jesus is saying in his sermon. He's saying, God doesn't owe any of us entrance into heaven. Jesus is only going to let those into heaven who seek Him with all their heart. You've got to have a heart that is fully fixed on Him by faith alone. It's the only way you're going to find acceptance in heaven. God, Jesus and the Lord is not looking for perfection as we think about it as English speakers. He's thinking about wholeness, that, that in, we have undivided hearts that are looking to Him. And if God is not obligated to let anyone into heaven, how does He allow anyone into heaven anyway? And He does it by grace alone. He has a whole heart, a generous heart. He gave freely through the cross of His dear Son. He gave so that we might then be givers. He poured out grace abounding to us as sinners. And He calls us to have generous hearts as well, to be whole and giving. A generous heart is a whole heart. It's pouring out forgiveness because we know that we've been forgiven. We don't withhold kindness from others because the, the God of the ages was kind to us. 
We give offerings and tithes because how can we outgive God? There's just no way. And we want to show God that there's nothing between us and Him. We give out of ourselves because we don't want Him to think, you know, like that we're ungrateful for what He has done. And so, as the illustrations progress, we move towards the, the inability of our human hearts to, to be able to serve two masters. We have to be singular in our focus. And so, verse 24, we have this closing illustration in which Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's a story told about a farmer whose best cow had twin calves, one red and one white. He said to his wife in his joy, you know, I've been led of the Lord to dedicate one of the calves to him. We'll raise them together, and when the time comes, we'll give the proceeds from, from one sale of one to the Lord's work. Well, and the wife asked which he intended to dedicate to the Lord. He answered, well, really, there's no need to decide right now. We don't have to go through that. We'll, 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 we'll get there when we get there, and we'll treat them all the same, and we'll sell them, and Well, several months later, the man came into the house looking very sad. When his wife asked what was the matter, he said, I have bad news. The Lord's calf is dead. She said, but you you had not decided which was to be the Lord's calf. Oh, yes. I had always determined that it was to be the white one. It is the white calf that has died. (laughs) It's always the Lord's calf that dies unless we are absolutely clear about our possessions. And the story illustrates the battle of our human heart. It's always the battle of the heart. Who do we worship? Who do we worship? To set aside one's tithe at first before you spend it is a matter of worship. It's a matter of recognition of who is first in your life. Who do you trust? Some people in their Bible translation will see the word instead of money, they'll see the word mammon. Mammon. That's interesting. Why did he choose the word mammon? Well, the word mammon was an Aramaic word, but this is a Greek testament that this is translated from. Why why did he use Aramaic? Well, I believe it's because the Aramaic comes from the Hebrew root, which means to entrust, to entrust, to place in someone's keeping. In this case, the word took on over time the idea of a deity. What are you putting your confidence and trust in as like a god? Mammon does mean material possessions, but there's almost like a mysterious use of it to Greek listeners who are hearing this read. It catches the idea that this is like a deity in which you have put your trust in. And this kind of progression can happen in all of our hearts. We can all look at money and wealth and then 
attribute to it values that only God can provide. We think that if we have a tremendous reservoir of cash assets, that therefore we will be safe. But what we do in that moment is we're putting values on that that only God can provide. God is the only one who can provide and assuage any anxieties that we might have about the future. And the question is, do we love Him or do we love mammon more? The rich man in Jesus' day came to Him and said, Lord, I will follow you. What would you have me to do? And Jesus said to him, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and then follow me. Why did Jesus do that? You know, Jesus didn't ask that of Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus didn't ask that of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He didn't ask them to sell everything that they had. Why did he do that? Because he knew the rich man's heart. That for him, that wealth would be an obstacle to truly serving him. Would he be willing to release and follow him alone? If we love him more than mammon, then we will give to him via the offering box. We will give to him first before we take care of our own, even our own resources. If you would be whole, then you must be singular in your devotion. Jesus has been talking about two eyes, and I left these blanks empty until the end. Are we going to be generous or are we going to be greedy? Two lords, or we worship Him in spirit and in truth, or do we seek the material? You know, there's a lot of broken people around the world, and you can have all kinds of money and be broken. You can have no money and still be broken. That's not the real issue. There are many people who experience deep trauma, a lot of brokenness, and we try to make safety nets for ourselves in all kinds of different directions. Jesus talked to one of these people in Samaria at a well. In her society, a single woman was not safe. It was a vulnerable place to be. You potentially could suffer abuse, and you didn't have the legal protections of a protector husband. In the process of trying to seek protection and safety, she went from husband to husband to husband. At every painful separation, she tried to find a better situation. No, she was sneaking, sneaking in the heat of the day when there would be less publicity, less people at the well. She was disfiguring herself, trying to hide We don't know exactly the full reason why she moved from man to man, but we do know that she was thirsty for wholeness, because Jesus addressed that issue with her. I'll give you something that will cause you never to thirst again. Through the years of searching for satisfaction, she became a pariah, an outcast. She was like the hobbit who clutched and craved the golden ring. 
The old song captured the human experience that we all face. Maybe you can identify with these words. Like the woman at the well, I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. (laughs) What is so precious to us that causes us to be willing to deform ourselves in order to get it? What would our friends say? What what, what about our spouse that, that kind of really knows us well? Sometimes we don't read ourselves very well. What would God say? The song goes on, And then I heard my Savior speaking, Draw from my well that never shall run dry. And this is the big idea. This is if you, you want to be whole. You must be singular in your devotion to following Christ. I close with the words of the song, which are encouraging to every single one of us. And it's the way in which we call out to the Lord. This old song says, Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, Feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up, and make me whole.